You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. For everything. For everything indie. For everything cults. It's the Blue Horseshoe now. Now. Here's your host, George Bremer and Ryan Hickey. And welcome back into the latest edition of the Blue Horseshoe Podcast. Ryan Hickey alongside George Bremer. George, it's been a very doom and gloom, tough week here in Coltsland as the Colts have gotten off to the worst start probably imaginable so far as they are sitting at 0-1-1. I think Colts fans, after what was so far an awful week after that Jacksonville loss, I think they deserve two things from this specific podcast we're going to try to give them. Optimism and answers. I'm personally an eternal optimist. I always try to look at the bright side. I think there are some areas, not a lot, clearly, but some areas we could point to today to give Colts fans optimism that after just two weeks of season is, in fact, not over. There is still a reason to believe this team can get to where they want to go, especially when it comes to one of their early season goals of winning the AFC South. But also how we get to that optimism, George, provide answers. Who's the most to blame? And also, how can this team turn it around? We have a loaded show. Uh, hopefully, at the end of this podcast, about 40 minutes or so, we will provide optimism and we will provide answers. It's been a very depressing week in Colts land. So with that said, George, how you doing, buddy? Doing well. It's a heavy burden that you've given <laughs> us there, though. But yeah, no, it's been a depressing week. Uh, no question about it, but uh, hey, my wife got her first middle school volleyball win last night. Let's and go. My daughter is celebrating her birthday, so it's a big week in the Bremer household. Happy birthday to your daughter. So look at that. We're already starting with some optimism. Your <laughs> wife and your daughter providing some some positivity here in an otherwise negative cold world. So look at that. We're already off to a hot start delivering on promises that we said. But with that said, George, at least let's start on a negative aspect, right? At least kind of look back one last time at the Jaguars loss. They're 0-1-1. This has been a total disaster. Like you said, we've we've highlighted the importance so far of getting off to a good start is for the Colts, and they have done the complete opposite so far. Fan The fan base has gone wild, and rightfully so, wanting Frank Reich fired, wanting Chris Ballard fired. I know it's early on in the season. Jim Mercer has never fired a coach in season in his 25 years as owner of the, uh, of the Colts. Do you agree with the fans? Is Frank Reich right now extremely on the hot seat where he should be fired pretty soon? I mean, I think he's extremely on the hot seat. I think everybody in the organization should be extremely on the hot seat. And when, when I watched that game on Sunday, my first thought was a total organizational failure. I mean, every single aspect did not go well. You know, whether it's the roster construction, whether it's the game plan, 
whether it's the execution on the field, nobody, and, and I don't think anybody does, nobody right now with that franchise should feel confident or comfortable with how things have gone. And like you said, disaster is the right word. You know, they're 0-1-1. You just got shut out in Jacksonville. And I think the most disturbing thing about it is eight months after what we all called the worst loss in franchise history, you go back into that same stadium and it looks the same, if not maybe even a little worse. That's that's the biggest frustration you're right because you, you've the Colts have talked all offseason about learning from that. Frank Reich has called that loss in Week 18 a scar, a scar that he does not want to remove. And you would think the way the Colts have talked after that loss, they would learn from it and make sure that a performance like that does not happen again. And you're right. I mean, you could argue this game was even worse than Week 18. I mean, they didn't even score a point. The offense looked feeble at best. It was it was a tough watch. With that said, though. I'm with you. Look, Frank Reich and Chris Ballard, I think so far through the first two weeks, are the most to blame for these struggles. With that said, I know a lot of the fans right now are calling for Frank Reich's job after week two and saying, don't even get on the plane back to Indy, just fire him right there. Frank Reich right now does not deserve to be fired. Not yet, at least. I think he deserves the benefit of the doubt to get through this season for a few reasons. Number one, I know a lot of Colts fans right now will not agree with the statement, but I still think it's true. I think Frank Reich's a good coach. Like I get right now, the, the the slow start is not very good, and it's been a lot of it's been on him uh, for some of this lifeless performance of the Colts so far. When you look at his four plus years so far in Indy, he's 37, 29, and one. He's made two playoff berths with five different quarterbacks. That lack of continuity is so hard on a head coach to try to consistently get success from this team when every single year the quarterback carousel is turning and you have no idea. Um, who's going to be your quarterback, and there's no way to really build from one season to the next. And also, too, last thing I'll say about at least Frank Reich, at least right now, in terms of keeping his job, as maddening, as frustrating as it is to get these slow starts, especially when we both have highlighted the extreme importance of getting off to a hot start this year more than ever with five division games in the first seven weeks and really having a chance to kind of get out in front of the division early, which is something they've not been able to do for a long time, really at, at any point in the Frank Reich era, and as frustrating so far as they have done the complete opposite of getting off to a hot start being 0-1-1, uh, Frank has shown a knack for turning this team around. I don't know what it is. I don't know if he just needs a few weeks to get comfortable on the offense or have a few weeks to have his message or maybe he's the best when his back stands to the wall. Whatever it is, we saw him in 2018 go 1-5. This team made the playoffs and made it to the second round of the playoffs. Last year, they're 1-4. Should have made the playoffs. Obviously, they collapsed. You know, it's inexcusable. But he has at least shown now a track record to be able to turn this team around. So I think he deserves the right, at least, to dig himself out of this early season hole he's put himself into. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that, you know, they have they have had a history of doing just this, you know, slow starts, uh, get hot towards the end of September, stay hot through November, and then December, you kind of coast on into either the playoffs or, you know, however the season ends. But, uh, and I agree, I think that, I think he's a good coach. I really do. I think there's a lot of things going wrong right now with this football team, and I think he's part of that equation. I mean, anytime you look the way you do through through two weeks, everybody should be looking in the mirror. Everybody should be feeling like maybe, you know, what can I do personally to get better to, to make this, you know, turn around? Uh, and that starts with the head coach. It always does, you know, and he's going to be blamed. I mean, you can look at anything that happens with this team is ultimately on him, and he's the first to say that. So, you know, I understand where the fan anger is coming from because you've had two games that are unacceptable, uh, the most recent one on every level. And it's really, you could go back to even the Raiders game last year, that four-game stretch where you've not seen this team play up to its potential. 
Uh, that being said, I think some of that, what you're talking about with the slow starts, goes back to the five quarterback thing. Every year it's a new offense. They want to build the offense around the strengths of that quarterback. I think it takes some time to kind of learn what that is and, and how that's going to all work together. I think it was most evident in 2020 with Phillip Rivers. You go back to that Cleveland loss, which felt a lot like this yes. one. It wasn't a shutout, but it was a complete disaster. Uh, gave the game away in so many different ways. And after that game, things just started to click. Rivers got on a hot streak, played a really great stretch for about a month, month and a half of football. They started winning games. You know, it could happen again. It doesn't feel like it right now. It didn't that week. If you could put yourself back in that emotional state, it didn't after that Browns game either. But we've seen it happen before. I think the problem this year is it's never, from an offensive standpoint, it's never been this bad. They're the 32nd scoring team in the NFL right now. Uh, that's going to happen when you get a shutout, you know, in the first two weeks, you're yeah. almost always going to be last. But that, that to me is the thing that the hill's a little bit higher to climb than it has been in the past. But I agree with you. I think we've seen history tells us they can do it. They at least deserve the chance to, to dig themselves out of this. And to your point, George, like, what is firing Frank Reich right now going to do? Like, honestly, is this Colts team being held back because of, of play calling? No, it's he's been part of the problem. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to, you know, be a Frank Reich apologist. Everyone, like you said, deserves blame right now for this slow start. But it's like, okay, well, the, the offensive line right now has has been is underwhelming to say the least. I mean, with the money that they're paying, we'll get the offensive line here in a little bit, but they've been a massive disappointment. Defensive line's not getting any pressure. You know, they, they have trouble uh for whatever reason, you know, getting after Trevor Lawrence. The run game has not been established in part because the offensive line can't get any movement in Jacksonville, like we saw in week number two. There has been zero, literally zero contributors consistently outside of Michael Pittman Jr. and Jonathan Taylor in offense. Matt Ryan has been shaky at times. Some of it's his fault, some of it's not. So you look around, Chris Ballard's to blame. The players are to blame. Frank Reich's to like Everyone right now is to blame. I would even probably right now put more blame on Chris Ballard than even Frank Reich because I think a lot of the positions he ignored or took gambles on are, are backfiring in a big-time way. And to Frank Reich's, I guess, defense, it's hard to call play sometimes when your left tackle is getting beat like a drum. And even some of the guys you paid are right now are not doing anything on the offensive line. So there's so much blame to go around that, like, if you do fire Frank Reich, like a lot of the fans want to do after week number two, like, I don't know where that gets you. Okay, Marcus Brady's now probably going to come over, you know, be the interim head coach, we'll say, or at least be the play caller in offense, right? I don't know how much better this offense is going to be with, with Frank Reich not there. So at least give him the opportunity to dig out of an 0-1-1 hole. Like you said, build some continuity of Matt Ryan, which is another, you know, you know, the fifth quarterback in five years. I know he's had the most really training camp opportunities of almost any quarterback they've had in the five years. But like you said, it's still a process. And also, it's still a process when no one else around him is stepping up and making any sort of plays outside of your two stars. Yeah, and I think, you know, I just go back through history in the NFL. How often does a midseason coaching change change anything? You know, maybe the next week, but even at the college level, I mean, Nebraska fired Scott Frost. How do they feel now? Yeah. At, the, at the time, you that know, did a lot. It, saved, it saved a lot of anger at that time. And it's a short-term fix. You know, if, if, if Ursay came out today and said, that's it, I'm done, he's gone, the fans would rejoice. But then if on Sunday, Kansas City comes out and boat racism, you're right back in the same place you were in. So, you know, I I, I just don't, uh, to me, head coaching changes at midseason don't very often make much of a difference. The only time I think that really makes a lot of sense is when the head coach is uh, an abrasive personality, when he's causing problems in the locker room, his demeanor or, or his, 
you know, the, his leadership style. And that's not the case with Frank Reich. I don't think even his biggest detractors would say that. Uh, you know, I, I just look at what you said. I To me, the, the very first thing that comes to the top of mind for me, this team had seven Pro Bowlers last year. It's been hyped again and again and again. It's, part, it's a big part of the reason we picked them to win the division this year. It's a big part of the reason there were high expectations coming into this season. They added three more in the offseason, and Yannick Ngakwe, Stephon Gilmore, and Matt Ryan. And where are they? Where are they on game day outside of Jonathan Taylor, who's done the most he can given his circumstances? Where are the other nine pro bowlers? Where are you seeing that coming from? That, to me, is, you know, priority number one. Especially, too, George, because I remember I remember this conversation vividly. We were back in training camp, and as always, I feel like coming out of Colts camp, guys look good, guys are flashing. Oh, Unique Ngakwe is, you know, beating Matt Parr like a drum and getting after the quarterback looking good. Alec Pierce is making one-on-one plays and looking good. I always feel like the Colts in training camp look good, and you hear good positivity coming from, you know, whether it's their own stars, whether it's guys that are developing and on the up and up. And this has been a consistent trend so far in recent years has been their disappearance in the big game, whether it's right now to start the season, whether it's in a big game, you need a, you know, a big play from your quarterback or your wide receiver, or your defensive end. The Colts have, I feel like routinely come up short in that area. And now, like you said, when you look at the talent and we're trying to throw blame around and say, what's going on? Sure, it's easy to point the finger, like I said, Frank Wright, Chris Ballard, like we've been doing. And again, they deserve blame rightfully so. But also, this Colts team, they made a heavy investment in bringing stars in and bringing proven veterans in and have paid those proven veterans to perform. And right now, everyone, like I said, outside of Jonathan Taylor, has not shown up. Yannick Ngakwe, zero impact whatsoever, no sacks in two games against two offensive lines that he should have success in and in, in uh, Houston and in Jacksonville. You had, you know, Stefan Gilmore playing okay, not getting too many opportunities, but Kenny Moore has been so far, you know, playing like the worst year of his career. Um, you know, the, the offensive line with Ryan Kelly, you know, and Quentin Nelson have been a disaster. You paid Braden Smith as well. He's not been very good. Michael Pittman Jr., you know, has been solid, but again, he's been on the field for one game. Matt Ryan has been under siege and he's had, you know, uh, so far, an inability for anyone else outside of the two stars to step up. You're right. It's been a total disaster in part because a lot of the guys that you are relying on, Shaq Leonard hasn't been on the field, which obviously is a huge, you know, key for this defense. They've either been not on the field or not performing to their standards. And it's been a big issue right now. We're sitting at this team who's one of the worst, frankly, through two weeks in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, I, I would put him. I, I know we had the, the power rankings up there earlier on, on the scroll. I would put him 32nd right now. I don't know how you put anyone above the or behind them. Uh, when, when you look at the teams that they've played and the performances they've had against them, uh, I just don't, in, in my mind right now, through two weeks, now that changes. The NFL is the most week-to-week league right. in, in the world. I mean, we we know this. We see it every year. You know, somebody comes out and, and looks horrible, and then they upset, you know, supposedly the best team in the league. And we it's gotten to the point where there are no surprises in the NFL anymore. There are no upsets because you could see it. I mean, you just look at last Sunday within games, what the Cardinals did against the Raiders, what the Dolphins did, you know, in, in their comeback against the the Ravens, Ravens yeah. and, and what the Jets did to the Browns. You know, those things happen within games, let alone week to week. It's almost a quarter to quarter league right now, I guess. But through two weeks, I I think you have to if you're looking at it objectively, you have to think the Colts are the worst team in the league. 
I would agree. And ESPN, they've had the, the Colts ranked now 25th through two for uh, through two weeks. NFL.com is 26. And you have, you know, Mike Florio, uh, a pro football talk. I think is right. He's with you, George. He's the 32nd. He's the worst team in the league. But to kind of go back to at least the problems we started talking about in the offseason, or in the offseason, to begin this podcast, optimism. Colts right now have played like one of the worst teams so far through two weeks in the NFL. Is there reason to believe they could turn around? I think the answer is yes. We'll discuss one of the reasons why they could turn around and have some hope and belief when the Blue Horseshoe Podcast does return. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. As always, like and subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts to the Blue Horseshoe Podcast. All right, George. So a lot of negativity so far. Let's try to bring some sunshine in what is right now a very dreary outlook on this Colts season. We just were talking about before about the disappearance of really all the talent on this Colts team. We talked about the seven Pro Bowlers last year. Really no one right now is stepping up. They brought in a few others as well this offseason. I think one of the areas of optimism for this Colts team now moving ahead, looking ahead, is the fact that this team has a lot of talent. And it's like, maybe this is just me being a sucker, George, and being an eternal optimist that I am. I have a hard time believing guys like Unique Ngakwe are going to be this bad the rest of the season. I'm going to have a tough time thinking, I think right now the best guard in the NFL and Quinn Nelson is going to continue to be a non-factor. And this offensive line that is the most heavily paid in all of the NFL is going to continue to be more of a weakness than a positive. I'm going to believe that Matt Ryan, even though it's looked ugly so far for the first two games, is going to get in a rhythm, is going to play better. And I'm going to believe at least this defense is going to be, especially in the back seven, is going to be a lot better than what it's shown so far through the first two weeks. I think the talent and the names on this team, just there's just no way, at least right now, through two weeks, I can believe they will continue to play as bad as they've shown. Is there, are you with me, George? Is there a reason to believe? Or again, my kind of being more of a sucker here and kind of trying to chase false hope? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a basis for what you're saying. You know, the talent is there. That's why, that's why we picked them to win the division at the beginning of the year. It's why we spent all training camp talking about, you know, get off to this hot, hot start and Put yourself in a position to, to worry about seeding and things like that, which we thought would happen because there is a lot of talent on this football team. And I, I personally think it all has to start with the offensive line. Nothing else is going to get better until that area improves. This offensive line is heavily paid. They've got two Pro Bowlers. Braden Smith has been has played at a Pro Bowl level. He just hasn't been to a Pro Bowl yet. Uh, you knew there'd be some adjustment with two new starters. But it can't it can't be this bad. It can't, you know, seven sacks through two games. And that number should probably be higher. I mean, Ryan yep. probably should have been sacked more in Houston than he was. 
uh, you know, four yards rushing for, for Jonathan Taylor in the first half on Sunday against Jacksonville. This line is, is well-paid. It's well-respected around the league. They've got to step up first. To me, that's where it all, start, all starts. If you get them to start bullying teams again, then all of a sudden Matt Ryan has time. He can probably make some better decisions and some better throws. Jonathan Taylor gets some room to run, and now your offense can get going. Right now, as, as I said earlier, you're the 32nd-ranked offense in the NFL in terms of, of points, which is the most important stat in my mind. And, you know, you until that goes up, yeah, there's things they got to fix on defense. There's things that need to be fixed with the wide receivers. There's a lot of areas that need some help on this team. But until the offensive line starts playing to its standard, I don't know that anything else can really improve. What do we say to start the podcast, George? We're going to try to provide optimism and answers. And one of the answers, or at least we're hoping to provide, of how this team can turn it around is through tangible advice or tangible um, points. And you're right. I'm with you. Right, because like the the Colts can turn this season around in one of two ways: rely on their strength, right, or hope a weakness right now can turn around and become a strength. I'm with you right now. Like I'm not hoping, or I'm not basing my optimism on the wide receiving group turning it around, and all of a sudden, you know, Alec Pierce, Paris Campbell, and Ashton Doolin becoming, you know, a four-headed monster like they have in Cincinnati. I'm not, you know, sitting here thinking this defensive line is going to be like the monsters of the midway, and all of a sudden start getting after the quarterback in, in a you know historic fashion. I'm with you. This team, this turnaround starts with the highest paid group uh, offensive line in the NFL. This team starts with what is their identity and their strength. You paid the guys that um, that deserve to be paid in Ryan Kelly and Quentin Nelson and Braden Smith. Like I said, Chris Ballard has talked about ad nauseum about how he wants to build his team through the trenches. And this team, their success, especially in offense, it doesn't start with Jonathan Taylor or Michael Pittman Jr. or Matt Ryan. It starts, like you said, with that offensive line getting a push and whether it's getting, you know, Matt Ryan time to throw the ball or giving Jonathan Taylor lanes to run through, that's where this turnaround is going to start. They are a way better and more talented unit than so far than they played. Even like to your point with two starters that are questionable and Matt Pryor and Danny Pinner, you still have three established veterans, three Pro Bowl level players that should kind of like, you know, how all tied, you know, was it a uh, high tide raises all boats? That is the same thing here when you have three pro bowlers out of basically five positions in the offensive line. This unit has to play better. I think that's where the turnaround for the Colts is going to come. It's going to start in the trenches, and it's going to start on the offensive line to start you know, giving Matt Ryan more time uh, to throw the ball and giving Jonathan more lanes to run through. That's where this team is going to turn it around. And, you know, they I think defensively – and this is going to sound silly and there's going to be people who hear this who are probably going to throw their radio or whatever they're listening on their phone, you know, out the window, but the defense is not that far from where it needs to be. The biggest problem the defense has right now is twofold. One, they're not getting the splash plays. They've got to get the sacks. They've got to get occasionally a turnover. You got to knock a ball loose here and there. But to me, the number one thing with the defense is third down. They're, they're yep. not giving up big plays. They're not giving up giant chunks of yards. You know, I don't know how many times you saw both Houston and Jacksonville, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 play drives, but somewhere in that, that's what the defense is designed to do. But the goal is somewhere in there, you're going to get a third down stop. That's what the defense has to do. And it, whether that's getting sacks from Ngakwe and Buckner, whether it's getting just, you know, tighter coverage in, in the secondary or a turnover here and there, you've got to start winning on third down. And 
I think that's if the defense if the offensive line starts playing better, you're gonna see the offense take off. If the defense starts playing better on third down, you're gonna see the defense take off. And two, uh, especially on the defensive side of the ball, like you said, you know, Gus Bradley, new system coming in, no Shaquille Leonard, obviously, right now to the first two games. So there is reason to believe this defense can turn around. But like you said, it just goes back to also one of the reasons for optimism, just the talent. Like you have a very talented defensive line that's really underperformed where you look so far through two games, they have one sack in eight uh, regulation quarters. That's awful. That's that's unacceptable. And the only sack came from EJ Speed. So it's not even like, you know, Unique Gakwe or Quiddy Pay, again, in, at least in, in regulation, are getting after the quarterback on a consistent basis. And when you have Davis Mills and you have Trevor Lawrence having the time that they have, they're going to pick you apart. And that's part of it too, is just, like I said, getting a stop, getting an incompletion. It also starts with pressure the quarterback, making them uncomfortable. I and mean, Trevor Lawrence was 25 of 30 on Sunday. Got all day. He had no pressure on his face. So, of course, it's almost like a seven-on-seven seven when you're sitting back there with all the time in the world. That's where, like you said, the defensive turnaround starts, and it starts with hopefully their high-paid star players into Forrest Buckner and uh, Unique Ngakwe getting after the quarterback and making their presence felt, which, again, goes back to the reason why I'm, I'm at least believing this Colts team this season is not over and why the sky's not falling. They have the talent to turn this around. It's not like this team stinks where it's like the Texans and there's no talent anywhere and we had false hope. Like there is talent up and down this roster for the most part, for the most part, there's glaring deficiencies. Don't get me wrong, but you look around almost every position group has one pro bowl esque player. That, that's good, you know, talent development. That's good talent management. Now it's just having those players you pay step up to get the job done. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that simple. Honestly, your star players have to play like stars. And I think the thing that got driven home, and Jonathan Taylor talked about it a little bit in the locker room after the game on Sunday, this is a very brutal punishing league. It, it, the margin for error is very small. I don't know if people realize that really. It doesn't matter who you're playing, whether it's Jacksonville or Houston or Kansas City on Sunday. Every team in the NFL, if you go out and, and you show weakness – and you have mistakes and, and, and you do the things this team's done in terms of penalties, in terms of turnovers, in terms of missed assignments, missed alignments, they're going to make you pay. And so that's the other area. Star players have to play like stars. you got to get big plays. You're not going to win games in the NFL without big plays. The other area is cleaning up the little details. You know, too many things slipping by on this team. I don't three or four times they were lined up in the wrong place, got a penalty for it. I don't know how many how much it shows up on TV, but both of the first two weeks, there were a number of times where the Texans or the Jaguars shifted on offense, and all of a sudden the defense is pointing at each other. Guys, it's it's chaos. No one's where they need to be until right before the snap. You do those things in the NFL, the results are what you've seen so so far with this team. And even the bad teams, like you said, are so good where they will, if you show like any sort of weakness or any sort of miscommunication, they're still good enough to take advantage of that. And that's so far something you've seen the first two weeks in the Texans and the Jaguars doing consistently. Another area, George, I think that they can utilize to turn it around uh, to slow start. I think they got to get Naeem Hines more involved. This might be, you know, I guess uh, I'm turning to a Naeem Hines stand here after kind of talking about his importance uh, going into week number two for this offense. But it's like Frank Reich especially got him involved early in the first drive. He was targeted three times, making some plays. Then was targeted for whatever reason just twice after that. And one thing that did bother me was Frank Reich's explanation after the game saying that, you know, they try to get Naeem Hines involved early and then it's, well, after that, then it's Jonathan Taylor time. Well, when you're giving the ball to Jonathan Taylor nine total times in the game, 
and you're in the deficit the entire game and you're passing more than you're running the ball, I think it's time to say, all right, scrap the run. Or, God forbid, we put two running backs on the field at the same time, especially when no one else around Matt Ryan offensively is making any plays. Like, it's not like uh, Michael Strawn or, or Mo Ali Cox or Paris Campbell are making play after play after play where they're keeping Naeem Hines on the sideline. Like, after Jonathan Taylor, he is probably their most explosive and dependable playmaker on offense, especially in week number two and Michael Pittman not there. And the fact that Frank Wright just didn't utilize him more in that game is frustrating. I think now you have to really reevaluate what you're going to do because especially when you're going against a Chiefs offense that's going to, we know, going to put up a lot of points. Patrick Holmes is not slowed down without the uh, without Tyreek Hill out there. So you got to think, all right, we're going to have to score a ton to be in this game on Sunday. Well, obviously you're going to try to feed Michael Pittman Jr. If he's healthy, you think even he's on the field, he'd be limited in some aspect. Obviously, Jonathan Taylor is there. But other than that, don't you want to start feeding the ball now to guys that have proven to be playmakers? And I am Hines, whether it's in the run game, whether it's in the pass game or the return game, has shown you a consistent ability to make the first guy miss and make some plays. Like it's gotten to the point where now you have to have the other guys earn your trust, right? It's no longer, hey, we're going to try to throw to Paris Campbell on third down because, you know, we're just going to see what happens. Or, hey, it's third and five. We're going to see if Alec Pierce can make a play. I think the trial and error period is done. Now it's you got to prove it. And right now, one of the guys that have proven it so far, I think, is Hines. And that's a guy that I think when it comes to this offense being more explosive and getting, you know, bigger plays, it starts with him getting the ball more. Yeah, I think the usage of Hines is is the biggest, most like uh, accurate thing that I've seen as far as criticism against Reich from that game on Sunday. Uh, one thing we got to remember is that there were only 50 offensive plays, which is about half. It's right about half of what they ran against Houston, which is crazy when you think about it. Uh, and that that had some effect on on the play calling, and it had some effect on who got in there. But Hines was only in on 15 of those 50 snaps. And when you had a day when two of your top three wide receivers were not there and you admit that it was tough to kind of adjust the game plan accordingly because they really thought most of the week they were going to have both Pierce and Pittman. I think they found right. out on Friday Pierce wasn't playing. They found out on Saturday they wouldn't have Pittman. And so, you know, part of that explanation there was, well, it's easier to adjust with the wide receivers than it is to kind of increase Hines's role as a receiver when it's not something he normally does. And I understand the logic of that, but it doesn't preclude what you were talking about, which is putting him in the backfield, rotating him out, having him there with Jonathan Taylor. I thought we would see more of that anyway uh, this year, even when Pittman and Pierce are healthy. Uh, I think it's something we do need to see more of. They, they said all offseason long they were going to involve Hines more. Uh, you know, it's, it's a supposedly a huge goal for the year. And then one of the things they talked about was the explosive plays they got when they put both those guys in the backfield together, because one or the other ends up making a big play more often than not. Uh, it just seems like on Sunday, that was an obvious thing. And whether or not Pittman and Pierce were, were late scratches, uh, shouldn't affected that. It should have been part of the play game plan before that happened. And it should have only been emphasized afterwards. I think getting Hines going and, and getting him in the backfield with Pitt, uh, with Taylor, yeah, it's, it's probably right behind the offensive line on my list of things that, that could quickly improve this football team. Absolutely, and especially with how lifeless his offense looked. It's like, you got to adjust. Like I get, you know, coaches game plan all week, right? But as soon, And even with Saturday when you find out Michael Pittman Jr. is not going to play, I mean, it's a surprise. Well, you got to quickly realize, okay, well, who else am I relying on? And when you look at the cast of characters the Colts are relying on, like there's no one that should say, oh yeah, I'm going to trust him 
over on Naeem Hines. Oh, yeah, we're going to give him more playing time because he deserves it and has proven more than, than uh, Naeem Hines. Like you said, they've talked all offseason so far about getting more involved in the passing game and getting him on the field more. So far through two, so you haven't really seen it. So that's one of the frustrations, too, with this Colts offseason is they've talked a lot about learning from the Jacksonville loss, about trying to involve guys like Naeem Hines more in the offense. So far through two weeks, it has been the complete opposite so far, and nothing has changed. But finally, at least the last, ho- hopefully, bit of optimism we can look towards here, George, to the season's not done yet, seems not dead, is the fact that the division is awful. The division right now stinks. And even with the fact that the Colts over a number, uh, which was set at 9.5 by BetMGM, which I believe we both went over uh, in the preseason, that is already through two weeks dropped, two games to 7.5. Even with that said, and that's a, right now, even if the Colts go over at 8-9, it's a losing record. They're still favored to win the division, in part because you look around, the Jaguars are the only team in the division with a win. T- uh, Tennessee right now is the biggest challenger. I still would say the biggest challenger of the Colts, 0-2, and they've looked horrendous. There's still a reason why this is, despite how ugly it's been, George, I still think it's the Colts' um, division to lose. Yeah. Yeah, and that that's what makes this start so frustrating because if you take care of business and you're 2-0 and like you should be, uh, you'd be feeling really good about where you are in the, in the division right now, and you would feel like the Kansas City game's a nice measuring stick kind of football game. Instead, you're back in that same spot you've been, which, like you said, all the talk in the offseason was this is not going to happen. Here you are, 0-1-1, trying to dig yourself out of a hole, trying to and, and 0-1-1 and in the division as well, right. uh, which, you know, never that, that plays into tiebreakers. It's never a good thing at all. Uh, but here you are sitting here going into week three, uh, as bad as things are, as as bad as this team's looked, and again, I think they they've looked like the worst team in the league. The division is giving you a chance, and the AFC South is the land of of opportunity. You know, it has been for for a long time. It, it it's probably the single biggest reason for optimism out there right now. The fact that when you look around, Jacksonville is the only team in the division with a win. Uh, you feel like yeah. If you get on a hot streak for a good month or so, you're right back in the, you're right back in it anyway. They're second place in the division. There's you know they're not out of anything. There's 15 games left. Uh, I think it's hard to remember sometimes looking at the big picture, uh, just because things have gone so poorly. But yeah, no, I think looking forward, there's still no reason to believe that this isn't the team that, that that's most capable of putting together a run and winning this division. I know the old saying, right? If it's and butts were candy nuts. So I'm not trying to like just, you know, say, you know, kind of say, oh, if only, you know, like I get, understand like a lot of ifs don't win you games, right? Especially in the NFL, ifs don't win you anything. But you look to, to your point with how bad this division is, if the Colts did take advantage of their opportunity so far, they're sitting there 2-0 and everyone else is 0-2. Like you win that week four game against Tennessee, the division, you make an argument is, is already close to being over. So it's like it's right there in front of you. Tennessee is not looking very good. I mean, you look at Derrick Henry so far coming back. He's 107 yards so far in the season. He's averaging 3.1 yards per carry, a career low. And we know that Tennessee team, that Tennessee offense is run through Derrick Henry. So if he can't get it going, Tennessee's not going to be very good at all. They lost to a giant team that's not very good. I know our producer Bill's a big Giants fan. I'm sorry about that, Bill. Giants are not a very talented team. So it's right there for the taking. And again, I hate to keep harping on it, but when you look at the talent and the roster on this team, they are not as bad so far as they truly have looked through two weeks. And there should be optimism. They can turn around. Where you look at Tennessee, they're built through Derrick Henry. Ryan Tannehill is not a guy you can really trust. They lost their best defender in Harold Landry. That defense especially got exposed by Buffalo, although everyone get you know blown out by Buffalo. Fine. But Jacksonville has their own concerns. 
and Houston is not very good either. It's this is still the Colts division to lose. And it's still, even with the 0-1 and one star in the division, I think it'd be a massive upset if they don't win this division. I mean, based on talent, I agree. But you know, they've they've got to start taking it to the field. And that's the other thing they talked about all offseason long is you know, credentials and, and accolades and whatever's on paper is there just that it's on paper you've got to take that out onto the field you've got to show it in competition uh and that's supposed to be the lesson they learned from that jacksonville game last year so far that lesson's not been learned and i think that's you know i i, I go back to what, what you said before all these things that you did in the offseason the talent that you brought in the lessons that you supposedly learned the things that you supposedly did to become a better football team have not shown up yet and you just got to believe over the last 15 games of the year, that's not going to be the case. At some point, the talent, the the football intelligence, the character of this football team will show up. It's they've they've had a track record for getting it, you know, in gear in the past after a slow start. I'm going to bank on on past history and think that's going to happen again. Uh, but I understand those Colts fans right now that at least are, are not very uh, optimistic. It said very pessimistic. So at least we started this pod by trying to provide optimism trying to provide answers. I think we did a good job at least providing the answers to who is the most to blame, but also to how a turnaround can happen with this team. I feel like, George, you're going to be the voice of reason for this pod. I think that's absolutely necessary because I will definitely get carried away either too positive or too negative. I think you are more level-headed when it comes to this team so far through two weeks. Is there any – did I sway you at all in terms of optimism-wise, or is this still a Colts team that you think is closer destined to a number one overall pick than, let's say, a playoff berth? You know, I just my problem right now is, uh, like I said last week, they they've lost the benefit of the doubt with me. You know what I mean? I need to see fair, it that's on the fair field. too. You know, like I I get it, and and I I agree with everything you said, and I I hundred percent think this team's too talented to continue to play like this. It's too talented to be a team that that ends up picking first in the draft. But right now, I just need to see some some hard evidence on the field from this team, and I think. I think probably most people are feeling that way. You know what I mean? It, it, we know what they are capable of. We know what's on paper, uh, you know, what this team should do. But I think it's time for them to take it to the field and, and give us some reason for optimism, uh, you know, with their play. And that, that's very fair to me. Like you said, this you after a while, and we've kind of even harped on it before, it's been a lot of talk, a lot of talk, a lot of talk. Now it's time to actually put the work on the field. Like I said, they have shown you no reason to believe so far. Um, but at least the way I operate is is optimistic uh, to a fault. So I will still kind of point to at least the hope that the turnaround is there. But George, I mean, like I said, that's why you're the voice reason because right now on paper through what we watch, and we're well, not even on paper, what we watch through two weeks, they've given you really no reason to believe so far they could turn this, this ship around. That is for sure. All right. So right now, present day, the Colts do not provide many optimism, many reasons to look back uh, fondly. But – the Hall of Fame, the, the first nominees for the next class, the 2023 Pro Football Hall of Fame class, had been released. Seven former Colts are on that list. We'll discuss who they are and the chances of any Colt getting inducted into Canton this time next year. We'll discuss that when the Blue Horseshoe Pod does return. It's always fun, George, to look back at the glory days, especially for the Colts, right? The last two decades, there's been a lot of fond memories. And right now, speaking of the glory days, the Pro Football Hall of Fame did announce on Tuesday 129 modern-era nominees for this upcoming 2023 uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame class. Seven Colts on that first initial list. Reggie Wayne, who's been on the ballot before. Dallas Clark, Jeff Saturday, Dwight Freeney, Robert Mathis, Bob Sanders, 
And yes, Pat McAfee on the list as well. George, obviously Reggie Wayne has gotten close before. This is Dwight Freeney's first cha- uh, first time on the ballot. Will we see any uh, Colts right now inducted into Canton this summer? Now, McAfee should go in the Business Hall of Fame because <laughs> I don't think true. there's ever been a, a punter in history who retired and, and and put himself in a better situation than Pat McAfee. Uh, the Colts can't that afford him now. That is 100% true. Rigo went down and there were some jokes about bringing him <laughs> back. It's like, yeah, you can't afford him anymore. Sorry. Uh, no, I, look, Reggie Wayne should have got in, I think, already. Um, it'll be interesting to see how long, how much longer that wait is. But I think his playoff numbers alone make him a Hall of Famer. I, if you look at all the key stats, yards, touchdowns, receptions, you know, all those things, the only guy who's been better in postseason history, I think, than him is, is Jerry Rice. And that, to me, is that's enough. You know, I mean, that when when you're second to Jerry Rice, you're a Hall of Famer. I don't care what stat it is. Uh, Freeney's, you know, I, I think Freeney, the one thing that, that they're going to look at with him is, was it quite long enough? He had a long career, but the, the peak of it, you know, did, did he do enough in those peak years? I would say yes, but it'll be interesting to see what the voters say there. Uh, I think he was definitely a guy that defenses or that, you know, opposing offenses worried about week in, week out. Um, I think he he had enough Pro Bowls and, and and all pros and those kind of things. Those always you know go into play. Uh, you could argue that that Peyton Manning would have three rings if if Freeney didn't have an injury in the second half. You know uh, that New Orleans game uh, somehow overcame that ankle injury the whole first half, but you could tell he wasn't himself in the second half. And the Colts defense wasn't the same as a result. So uh, to me, both Dwight Freeney and Reggie Wayne are are Hall of Famers. Uh, I don't think Freeney's going to be a first ballot guy. That, that that seems like such a rare air to be in. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think he's there. Uh, but I think it'd be hard to keep him out when you look at really the peak of his career. And Reggie, again, I mean, he was consistent throughout his whole career, but in the playoffs, he was a beast. So to me, those two guys uh, should get in. The other guys are really good players. I mean, you could sit here and make a case for Dallas Clark. You can make a case for Bob Sanders. The career is just too short. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, to me, Freeney and, and Wayne are, are the guys. I'm, And I think both will get in eventually. I'm with you. I just don't think it's going to be this year. For Reggie Wayne, it's the frustrating part for him is it's not even his, like, his fault per se. Like I said, you just highlighted the stats and, and all the numbers. They're right there. The issue is we've seen a backlog of wide receivers. Um, and it's kind of like, oh, you know, a trickle down effect where there's other guys you got to get in quote unquote first. So, you know, because of the hall took so long to put some of these great wide receivers, I mean, I look, I know T.O. was a little bit different because I was a little bit more personal than anything else. But it's taken a while now for some of these great receivers to get in. So I'm going to think Reggie is going to get in. But the issue is there's other guys in front of him that um, I think will get in first. Like guys like Torrey Holt, I think, will, will be someone that will go in first before Reggie. But sitting with Dwight Freeney, too, like I said, like he was – one of you know the most feared pass rushers in the heyday of the Colts. And anytime you can make the um, Pro Football Hall of Fame first team all-decade team for the 2000s, like, I think that's one of the, the small bars to clear to get into the Hall of Fame. Like I said, he's Pro Bowls, All-Pros. He's right there. He's an extremely feared defensive end. Like he was really after Peyton Manning, you know, at least defensively. He was like the Peyton Manning-esque guy on defense. Where he was always the consistent guy. The guys uh, or the one guy defense is always schemed against every single week. Um, that's a guy I think, like you said, will be in Canton one day as well. Just Bob Sanders is, is the frustrating one. Because like you said, the the game-wrecking ability, the talent, like he really was one of the biggest keys to that Colts Super Bowl run. 
And one of the reasons why maybe the Colts should have more is just the issue is his health. Like you said, his career is not that long, and he could never stay on the field consistently. But, man, when he was on the field, George, he changed the game almost like no one other, especially from the safety position. He was unbelievable, you know, and I think uh, his style of play, unfortunately, didn't match with his size. And, you know, he was he, he just got himself into situations where he was he was reckless to the point he didn't care. You right. know, he, he was going to go and he was going to make the play and he was going to give up whatever it took to do that, which was one of the reasons he was so good and one of the reasons he was so beloved. But it's also, unfortunately, one of the reasons his career was so short. So, uh, you know, I think Bob Sanders, every safety that comes here, that's all you need to know about Bob Sanders every safety that comes here he's the standard you know yes well this guy's pretty good but you know he's not bob sanders and and i think freeney's kind of that guy freeney and mathis both are that guy with with the defensive ends um you know that that's to me that's one of the hall of fame marks like you know how how big an impact did you leave on the league as a whole but also on your franchise and for bob sanders it's just a shame that he didn't play a decade in this league or i think he'd be a, a no doubt about it hall of famer I'm with you. I'm with you. And go back to the Reggie Wayne conversation too. Like you look at some of the receivers that are going to be like up for uh hall of fame. Election. It's tough. Like Anquan Bolden, really good receiver. A guy like Devin Hester, I'm hesitant to at least mention this conversation because he's obviously, he would get in only for his kick return ability, but I don't know how the hall is going to differentiate where if they say, all right, we're going to put a wide receiver in and let's just say, for example, it's going to be Devin Hester. You know, again, he's more of a kick returner. Like, I don't know how that's going to work. If he's going to take up another spot for receiver, it's going to be tough. Steve Smith Sr. is a really good receiver. Heinz Ward is someone who was, you know, really good. The Steelers, like, there was a lot of really good receivers right now in this in this uh, Hall of Fame class, I think. I think Reggie's going to get in, but it's another tough for him former right now. Colt, Another former Colt, too, Andre Johnson. Yeah, that, great call. Yeah. But, you know, that's it. He and Reggie were were teammates at Miami and and really close friends. And I think, you know, that it's going to be interesting because they're probably going to be in line behind one another trying to to get into Canton now. But uh, can you imagine that Uh, Miami offense with with Reggie Wayne and and Andre Johnson out there at wide receiver? And some of the, I think it was Willis McGahee or Franco like that. I mean, some of those Miami teams are early 2000s were just unfair. Like the, the, I think the second and third string. Could have, could have probably won a national title back in the day too. It's it's unbelievable, but it's a great honor, obviously, to be mentioned as you know a, a pro Hall of Fame nominee. And it's great to see the seven Colts on that list so far. So I think the two right now that we're really looking at that will probably get in, not this year, but you know the two most likely at least Colts wise, uh, are Dwight Freeney and uh, and Reggie Wayne. Now it's just a matter of when, not if. Um, and I think it's definitely you know a great honor. Just goes to show you know, the great work Bill Poling did back in the day to construct this great roster where you have seven, you know, guys that played all kind of in the same window together up for the hall of fame nominees. You almost wish they, they won a little bit more than one Lombardi. Yeah. That's always going to be the regret from that. Right. And, and there's so many things that go into that with, with just circumstances and the way they played out. But yeah, uh, that era was unbelievable. And I think it really, honestly, it's what makes this era so frustrating because I think people had such a high bar set, you know, with Peyton Manning and, 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 and what he did, you, it was just given that, that you were going to be undefeated for September. And when Peyton Manning was here, you didn't lose in September. You rarely lost ever, but you definitely didn't lose in September. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's the bar for this franchise. It's where they're trying to get back to. Uh, and and it's I think it's always good to look back at, at those guys that kind of set, you know, the foundation for what – you could make an argument the Colts wouldn't even be in Indianapolis if not for guys like Peyton Manning and Reggie Wayne and Dwight Freeney. Like I said, it's nice to look back because the standard is so high because of, like I said, the great play that we got to watch 
you know, really throughout the entire 2000s decade. And, and obviously that continued with Andrew Luck as well. So it's at least nice when right now the current team doesn't give you a lot to, to feel good about and look back on finally. At least it's nice that we got to spend a few minutes looking back on a few Colts teams and a few Colts players that did bring us a lot of joy back in the day. So hopefully, as we conclude this uh, latest edition of the Blue Horseshoe Podcast, you're feeling a little more optimistic, uh, at least have a little more clarity on what the Colts need to fix in order to turn this season around and not have it be a total wash, really, before you even get started here. Big week three game, Lucas Oil Stadium, the home opener. Big Bad Chiefs coming to town. We will get the preview for you on Friday, set to go to get a break it down and discuss what areas can the Colts take advantage of. Frankly, if any, at this point, can they can they exploit on the Chiefs to make this a competitive game and maybe walk out of there with a one one and one record? As always, follow George on Twitter at GM Bremer. Follow me on Twitter at Ryan underscore Hickey and the number three. Colts fans. Put a smile on your face, all right? It's bad right now. Put a smile on your face. Everything will be A-OK. I can promise that right now. So between now and then, whether it's maybe hugging your loved one, petting your dog, bring a little extra positivity into your life because Lord knows right now we all could use it. So between now and then, that is the goal. Be more positive. We'll talk to you next time right here on the Blue Horseshoe Podcast.